0: a platform for supporting the collective inquiry into deep impact. As a part of the Poetry of Impact, the Journey to Impact podcast brings to life the ebb and flow inherent on the path of impact, illuminating the interior journey of the hearts and minds of today's top leaders in impact. Here, you'll hear the intimate stories of those who push forward to overcome self-limitations and societal barriers, to co-create a world where one day all people and planet can thrive together. My name is Gino Borges and I'd like to thank you for all joining us today on the Journey to Impact, a virtual fireside chat series. The Journey to Impact series is here to tell a different story of impact. While we naturally address some of the landmarks of the journey, this series is designed to create space for uncovering the emotional, mental, and spiritual challenges and successes along the path of impact is less about outcomes or results of actions, but rather the human components of what it feels like to operate in the impact world, illuminating one's inner journey. Today, I'd like to welcome Joe Sandberg. Joe Sandberg is a progressive entrepreneur and investor who is working through both the public and private sectors to change people's lives for the better. Uh, On the public side, he's uh, the founder of Cal EITC4Me, which is a statewide outreach program in California that helps low-income families claim the state and federal earned income tax credits. On the private side, Joe's primary occupation at the moment is as co-founder of Aspiration, an online banking and investment firm that provides socially conscious products with a pay with a pay what is fair business model. We'll be talking a lot about aspiration. We'll be talking a lot about Joe's journey to get to aspiration and where it all began. So welcome, Joe.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: Yeah, for sure. Take us back to, um, you know, a lot of people know you now as, for instance, myself, I came to your attention through aspiration. But I mean, this journey to aspiration began a long time ago. I know we've talked in the past about um, being raised in, in Los Angeles um, via a single mother, uh, challenging circumstances. Sort of take us back to the circumstances that you grew up in in, in L.A. and then walk us through uh, those early years at Harvard. And then we'll work into the uh, finance realm a little bit.
1: Yeah, you bet. Well, I, I grew up in um, Orange County near Disneyland. And my mom raised me by herself we didn't have a lot, especially when I was a teenager. And eventually, we lost our home to foreclosure um, when I was leaving for college. And I saw firsthand what I think so many Americans have experienced. And that is this idea that if you work hard and play by the rules, everything works out isn't true for most people. It's really an illusion. And I think it's the reason that so so many people are angry about the state of affairs in America. Um, So many people were sold this bill of good that if you work hard and play by the rules, everything works out. And when that promise that you're sold into um, as a kid, it, it turns out to be false, you're left feeling really disoriented. My mom couldn't have worked any harder. And things didn't work out for her when I was a kid. So that really animated the early part of my adulthood when I was an activist at Harvard and organizing justice for janitors and other things around social um, justice and economic justice. When I was graduating college, though, I wanted to provide financial security for my mom. So I started my career on Wall Street. And during that early part of my career, I really lost a connection to my core values and saw up close what we all saw from a degree of distance. And that is a model of business that divorces profit from purpose. I don't think there's anything wrong with making money as long as you're making money by delivering valued services and goods for your customers. But that whole era on wall street was about the total divorce between the purpose and profit. So when I was 29, actually, my brother um, took me out to lunch when I was visiting California and told me that my 18 year old self wouldn't, wouldn't like my 29 year old self. And that really jarred me because I liked who I was when I was 18. And um, that sparked me to leave that early part of my career, move back to California, and during the last ten years, have been focused on building organizations that are trying to fix things instead of break them. And my my compass throughout is be someone that my eighteen year old self would be proud of.
0: Well, uh, sort of walk us back to that that late teen moment um, you, when um, you left you know your mom to go to Harvard all the way across the country. I'm guessing she was still. Still in Orange County. Sort of take us back to that moment. I get the impression that you're very close and protective. Uh, I see. I mean, of your mo- you know, of your mother, and just sort of un- trying to understand that threshold moment of actually leaving, um, you know, the house to seemingly sort of be able to help her out in the future.
1: Well, Harvard was a really weird experience for me because you meet people that come from families whose great, 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 great grandparents were really rich. And I experienced Harvard very much through a class lens. Mm-hmm. Um, you feel out of place coming from a working class or low income background. You know, I'd, I'd stay at school during the holidays because I couldn't afford a plane ticket to go home. And actually, the closest friends I made in college were people who came from a similar background. Um, it was a really scary experience leaving for college at a time that my mom was losing her home and my grandmother with whom I was very close, was in the final stages of her life. And um, it was a real culture shock to be at Harvard during that time in my life when, again, I had so little I didn't have money, you know, to to buy, you know, pizza, let alone um, afford Harvard. So I was quite fortunate that the school gave me a lot of financial aid and I worked jobs extra to earn money um, to supplement my financial aid and to send money home to my mom.
0: So was the response of um, after Harvard and going into finance was a singular focus like I, w- I need to help my mom out on the material plane and help out myself? Like, was there an element of scarcity to your life that you wanted to go out there and felt like Wall Street and traditional finance was the um, maybe quick answer, but a form of medicine that could solve, you know, the previous, um, you know, scarcity that, you, that your family went through?
1: The only reason I applied for my first job on Wall Street is because I wanted to earn that salary to send money home to my mom. Mm -hmm.
0: Gotcha. So, I mean, sort of walk me through this idea of playing by the rules. I mean, because a lot of us hear about the seeming American dream. Um, you know, you work hard, and and in fact, it's still perpetuated pretty actively uh, to some extent, both parties. Um, and it's so deep that mantra. Um, as a guy that's deep into financial systems and has been both on the conventional side and now on the socially conscious side, and understands the mechanics of money and how money moves through through the system. Um, Give us an inside look of what you're seeing and um, in terms of how even if you play hard or, excuse me, work hard, it doesn't necessarily mean that you end up receiving a particular outcome in life. And in large part, it's because of it's a structural issue. And I feel like I've learned a lot through about the mechanics of money. And mechanics of finance through you. Perhaps maybe give us some insight on how the working class actually is kept down, even though they are working hard.
1: Well, first of all, we have to understand what the nature of poverty in America is. Somewhere along the lines, we've abandoned the definition of poverty to the statisticians and relegated to the question of those who live below some so-called poverty line. But when almost eight out of 10 Americans are living paycheck to paycheck, you can't tell me that those folks are middle class. Middle class isn't living paycheck to paycheck. Middle class isn't waking up in the middle of the night in a cold sweat wondering how you're going to pay for your medical bills. And so when we understand poverty as the lived experiences of real Americans instead of the statistician's definition of it, then what we're confronted by is we have a massive poverty crisis in America. In my view, the 8 out of 10 Americans who are living paycheck to paycheck are America's poverty crisis. There is no middle class. The the American dream is dead. Now, some people say that that's so negative to say, but I think what's negative is to lie to people and tell them that they're middle class when they're living paycheck to paycheck. I think what's negative and what stifles hope is when you lie to people and tell them about a dream of working hard and playing them by the rules, that doesn't exist anymore. What creates hope is seeing people's lives as they actually are being experienced what creates hope is if you narrate to people that you're not middle class and you know your life doesn't feel anything like middle class and when you're told by the media that you're middle class but you're living paycheck to paycheck and you wake up in the middle of the night wondering how you're going to pay your medical bills that doesn't make you feel hopeful that makes you feel isolated and the reason for this isn't because of some forces that came from outer space, like sometimes we're told, these questions of automation and globalization, as if they were out of our control. We've abandoned agency over our economy. We've allowed ourselves to be convinced that we are part of the economy and that the worship should be placed on maximizing efficiency and productivity instead of recognizing the economy is just some human. Construct it needs to work for human happiness, not for this completely unhuman notion of maximum efficiency. The question we should be asking when we're testing the merit of economic policy is: Does it make the human condition happier? And if it doesn't, then wh- what's the point? And you know, one of my favorite speeches from Bobby Kennedy is the University of Kansas speech he gave in 1968. And you know, paraphrase here he said something along the lines of, you know, GDP measures everything except that which makes life worth living. And those words more than ever describe how we think about economics and poverty and financial services today. We measure the good by these arbitrary, unemotional figures that don't actually tell you about the quality of people's lives. So at the heart of this is a broken system where most of us play by a certain set of rules that are transparent and then this small number of monopolies and ultra ultra rich people with lobbyists by the political system to create a separate set of rules that, that we don't even know about and we're left played like suckers and we wonder how is it that we're working hard and we don't get ahead it's because we're playing by a different set of rules than this small small group of people that really Artificially influence the system to advantage outcomes that are in their interest instead of the interest of the common good. And so, if we want to fix all of this, we need to get at the root cause of a system that relegates so many people to jobs where they're living paycheck to paycheck. We need to get at the root causes of a system that is infected with institutional misogyny and institutional racism so that when people perpetuate that kind of persecution, there are consequences that are proportionate to their crimes and actions. We've been going along for the last 30 years with real incremental change, putting Band-Aids on the problem. And now what we have to do in our generation is we have to go to the source of the wound and change the structure of the system so that it works for everyone, not just a small number of people with highly paid lobbyists that know how to create differential rules that advantage only them.
0: So Joe, um, have you um, explored and I'd like to understand your thought. Um, some people have started to make the claim that the progressive route to that um, way that you're talking about is not through additional taxation because uh, the few can always outmaneuver are incentivized and are anonymous and can move their capital around and always game the system, but to actually, Capitalize the labor class. So, actually breaking down the idea of there's capital and there's labor. Like, how much of the problem actually exists in that ideology of separation between the capital's processes and the production processes being owned by a few, and then labor actually can just simply contributing to capital's imperative? Well,
1: I think the approach requires all of the above roadmap. There isn't a single solution. We absolutely have to change the tax code so that monopoly corporations and ultra high net worth individuals pay their fair share. We also need to address questions like you pose between um, the distinction of labor and capital and the respective shares that labor and capital have in in gross domestic product. Um, But just capitalizing labor alone isn't going to be enough to rectify reality that as it stands now, those that have capital have such a significant lead on the rest of us. And until we change the tax code to redistribute wealth from those who have a ton of it based on institutional prejudices, we're never going to close the gender and racial wealth gap. The gender and racial wealth gap exists because of centuries of disparities in an economic system that advantage a patriarchy dominated by white men. And through just um, taxation of income alone, we're not going to close those gaps. We have to have more meaningful redistribution like what Senator Warren has proposed around a wealth tax.
0: How how do you sort of navigate the sort of the um, the the interior alignment of knowing that uh, you know as a white male you're a white male in terms of the world of identity and sort of knowing that uh, that our history is uh, our our identity history is actually complicit with um, you know the issue i mean is there um, i know you're an activist but is is there moments of sorrowful uh, guilt sadness or it's like no I'm taking my lot in life and I'm trying to do the best I can sort of outwardly. I'm just sort of understanding sort of the, the psychology wrangling that you might've went through with our ovarian lottery status in essence. It's like, okay, I've been dealt two, two two aces in the hole. And now how do I function in society when people likely are going to say, Joe, how can you say that? Because, you know, you're part of the issue.
1: Well, I can only speak from my own sense of identity, which is one of a duality. On the surface, I have white skin and I'm a straight male. So therefore, I have uh, unearned privileges that I carry. And at the same time, I'm also Jewish and know that there are individual white supremacists that want to kill me. My grandparents, uh, my maternal grandfather's family left Ukraine In the early 20th century, after Russian soldiers killed two of his older siblings in front of their house for being Jewish, um, every day I face threats as a result of my being very um, proud of being a liberal Jew. So speaking for myself, I live a complicated duality where in some senses I carry the unfair structural advantages of having white skin and being a straight male. And at the very same time, I carry the legacy of anti-Semitism that drove my family out of Ukraine and that I face every day when I walk through the world as a public figure and a proud liberal Jew. This is the most dangerous time in American history to be Jewish. also the most dangerous time in American history to be Muslim. Jews and Muslims pray every day in America now under the fear that we're going to be killed for how we worship that's both qualitative and also born in the statistics hate crimes against jews and muslims in america are at record highs and show no signs of abating so those factors speak to this complicated duality that i personally live balancing the reality that i have white skin and i'm a straight male with the simultaneous reality that I'm a proud liberal Jew who worships as a Jew and faces, you know, insanely high and constant anti-Semitic threats along with my Muslim brothers and sisters.
0: So, um, you know, I think we've known each other for a little bit over a year and a half now. And um, you're, um, it, I, I mean, you're really, you're, you're an upbeat, joyful person Um, And I know that you're also um, a guy that knows how to hustle in the marketplace, Um, but you also just shared something that's very um, visceral for you, this complicated relationship um, that you have. And just wondering on a day-to-day basis, what is your practice for massaging and softening that reality? Because, I mean, that could be somewhat debilitating um, as well, what, what you just shared. And I mean, some people would just sort of fold their cards in in that situation or feel like they're a victim. But I've never received that impression from you that you feel like a victim. So um, maybe walk us through a little bit about, um, I agree. I mean, you have a very complicated form of freedom based on certain identities that you have, a certain historical legacy Take us through what a day or week looks like for you as a result of this complicated freedom. And I mean, what do you do to assage and just sort of create a salve around that so you can constantly keep that joy alive for yourself and for others?
1: Well, for me, it begins with a really healthy prayer life that keeps me centered around a sense of purpose, meaning, and humility. Um, I think for each person, uh, she or he needs to find her, his meaning and sense of purpose. For me, it's through um, a progressive and humble faith in um, a God, a creator, a loving creator who's omnipresent, um, not some bearded white man in the sky, but rather something that is ineffable and profound and, and is infinite. That can't be boxed into human conventions of a piece of paper or a tweet. Um, I think it continues with a love of self and an acceptance of self. There's the famous guidance from scripture that says you should love your neighbor as yourself. And what's under, misunderstood about that is it's only meaningful to love your neighbor as yourself if you love yourself. And I think that people who are unkind to others are unkind born of not liking who they are in that moment. And we all are imperfect in that regard. We're all victims of being unkind. We're all victims of moments where we don't like ourselves. So what I try and do is just accept and live exactly as I am. I am a proud liberal Jew who loves being Jewish. And um, that's how I'm going to live my life. And my views kind of damn the consequences. Um, I'm not going to think about the risks that um, you know I face by walking through life wearing my liberal Judaism on my sleeve proudly. In fact, I hope that it's, a, it's a, a spark to others to live proudly with who they are and what they believe, whether they're Christian, Muslim, Jewish, Hindu, Buddhist, Sikh, agnostic, atheist. My hope for everyone is that they love and accept who they are and live their life proud of who they are. And, um, and I'm trying to do the same myself. And, and I get through the moments of the reality of anti-Semitism by by just frankly being at peace that um, I'm going to be who I am, I'm going to uh, walk proudly in the world as a liberal Jew, and um, whatever happens is out of my hands.
0: And how how has that manifested? Those like how is how have those values manifested now? Uh, values and his, and family history. So you have this family history thread in terms of not not only your historical legacy family history beyond your mom but you also have the the mom son history as well and now all of a sudden you have this sort of this growing awareness as you know you're reaching sort of middle life you've seen some cycles some cultural cycles you've said
1: yeah, speak for yourself i'm only 40 i don't do that middle age 40 yeah. is
0: a new 30. okay well all right. So um, I'm your new thirties. I'm not new thirties. Um, I'm 47. But anyways, my, um, I mean, my point being is, is that take us on how all of these life experiences, both, both um, you know, the complicated freedom, historical legacy, your values for uh, not divorcing purpose from, from business all sort of led into like, we need a different type of uh, financial, Product provider in the world. Like, I mean, how does one just wake up and I? So, I, I suspect it was a growing, bubbling um, feeling that is like, I want to do something in this area. Um, and and at that moment, you started to move some pieces around. So, just sort of take us to that threshold moment where it's all of a sudden where you didn't even know it was called aspiration yet. It was just that I wanted to do something that merged everything together.
1: Well, I think the moment that it all began was um, actually 27 years ago today, September 5th, 1992, when uh, I was bar mitzvah, which is a rite of passage for um, young Jews. For men, it's a bar mitzvah; for women, it's a bat mitzvah. And during that time, you read from the Torah uh, in front of your community for the first time. And my Torah portion was from Deuteronomy, uh, a section called Shofetim, and the key line of that section is justice, justice, shall you pursue? And the word choice of that section is, is purposeful and meaningful. It doesn't say justice, justice, shall you achieve? It says justice, justice, shall you pursue? We're judged by the authenticity and audacity of our pursuits. For me, that faith journey begins as a 13-year-old boy and continues the present, as I think about one of my favorite speeches by Dr. Martin Luther King, which is Unfulfilled Dreams. and Unfulfilled Dreams is all about being commanded to try. And um, Dr. King has this line in that speech that goes, one of the great agonies of life is that we are constantly trying to finish that which is unfinishable. We are commanded to do that. Okay? We are commanded to try. And so, as I've reflected on how I've spent the last 10 years, I think one of the huge problems we face as a society is the lack of consciousness we have about the purpose and power of our money. We vote every couple of years, but every single day as consumers, we spend $36 billion. Imagine if some portion of those $36 billion every single day was directed towards businesses that treat their workers and the environment better. If we did that, we could change the nature of how businesses treat people and planet and that charge then becomes how do you make it easy for people to be conscious have conscience about their money well deliver them a banking account in the core of their life so that a tour of the impact of their money is integrated into the things they're already doing with their money depositing their payroll into their bank account spending on their debit card to purchase their groceries. Well, that's the premise of Aspiration, is delivering you a bank account that make it that makes it easy for you to match your spending and your values, your banking and your values, um, while we'll also giving you the financial features that, that you need.
0: Now, inevitably, again, I'm speaking for myself, but usually whenever you share ideas during the early going, there's always doubters. Um, so I'm curious about what you heard at the beginning, because, I mean, I know that um, you took a lot of um, you, you surged forward by saying, look, I have so much faith in this that I am going to be the chief backer early on in this endeavor. I'm curious about what kind of voices you heard early on and, you know, the sort of the systemic doubt that constantly you had to um that you heard and that and you also had to metabolize and sort of deal with at some level.
1: Well, the key is you can't, you, can't, you can't even bother to digest it. You have to ignore it. Because most people that express skepticism express it from a place of lack of information. The only skepticism that one should accommodate is the skepticism that is well-informed, but very, 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 very little skepticism in doubt is well-informed. So you have to mostly ignore it. When people express doubt, they're both expressing a lack of information. They're also expressing the projection of their own insecurities Um, that they wouldn't have been um, courageous enough to start this. So they're made uncomfortable by someone else who, uh, you know, has a a audacity that they lack. Um, So I think whether it's as an entrepreneur or an activist or as a person of faith or anything really, you, you gotta be very limited in the energy and attention you give to doubters, especially doubters that have their own agendas and and are are only partially informed.
0: How long did it take? um, I I think I know the answer to this, but how long did it take um, from the time you started Aspiration to the time you guys had your first customer? um, And I suspect that it was more than one year. I think it was. um, And um, what goes through what, what went through you and your team before you started to have sort of the critical mass where people were actually starting to sign up? Um, I mean, there's always that moment while you may have been a believer in it, you also had to convince team members. You had to convince people that were bring, coming on board uh, people that were uh, investing with you. It's like, no, this really will work, but yet no one had signed up yet. Can you see, can you walk us through that chapter of aspiration and also for yourself?
1: Well, it's not actually that complicated of a chapter. I mean, it took about a year and a half before we took customers, but people understand that financial services um, as an industry is heavily regulated and it takes a long time to be ready to take on customers. Um, Again, you know, I think, um, you know, I've developed a reasonable discipline of not not listening to skeptics and doubters. Um, It's a big world out there. And sometimes we... um, fool ourselves into thinking there's only a small universe of potential supporters, whether it's investors or, uh, allies. And, and it's not true. Um, and so what you gotta do is when uh, people doubt you, you got to move on quickly and, um, you know, keep searching for the people who believe.
0: Yeah. The, um, so you've, um, I know one of the claims Aspiration makes is, is that one of its competitive advantages is that, unlike other bigger legacy banks, is, is that our values are built into the strategy, in essence. So, like, everything's in sync. It's not like we're Wells Fargo and trying to pivot from fossil fuels and trying to do environmental work at the same time because we're just sort of, um, I mean, you almost can't, can't shift. So recently, about a week ago, a lot of, uh, you know, esteemed traditional CEOs and legacy companies came out and declared, uh, we, we shouldn't divorce just like you to use your verbiage. Uh, we need to re rethink purpose with, uh, capital and our business endeavors. Um, what went through you when, when you heard that? And I mean, how realistic is that and where, where are they starting point or, and, and where's their starting point? sort of given that there's so much inertia for the chases and the Blackstones that are just so deep in in the traditional system?
1: Well, my hope is that everyone embraces these values. And I think eventually everyone will embrace these values. I don't think we're actually far off from that. I think in in 10 years time, the standards, the aspiration is inaugurated about how you conduct financial services will be embraced by most of the industry. There's plenty of market share to go around. I think one of the great things when you innovate is you actually increase the size of the market. You turn people on to new applications for goods and services. For example, most people haven't thought about the way they spend their money in the bank uh, and where they choose to have their banking account as a tool for impact in their life. And as they see that their banking account and their debit card spending can be more than just where they keep their money and where they buy their groceries, then demand for that goods and service increases too. So, um, you know, again, I don't think of this as a zero sum game and I celebrate that more business leaders are recognizing the merit of these, these factors. And I think we're going to see many, many more. I think this is just the very, very
0: beginning of a,
1: of a new age of business in America.
0: What, like, I guess what needs to be done besides, um, there being, uh, A collective narrative. And I mean, you guys are and all businesses are starting off at different points. Obviously, legacy uh, businesses start off at different points than venture ones like yours that start off a clean slate. But I mean, what's the mechanics behind that? um, Besides them just coming out and saying, um, I mean, you know this. I mean, what's going to be like what can the public do to say, Chase, you said X, Y and Z. Blackstone, you said X, Y and Z. Like, I mean, what can people do? What can labor, the working class do uh, to hold um, the narrative responsible?
1: Well, first of all, you have to focus on what you can do every single day. There are millions, probably tens of millions of people who are passionate about fighting the climate crisis, whose bank account is at a place that uses their money to make loans to fossil fuel. And so right now, if you're listening to First thing you can do is examine where you have your bank account. And um, if it's at a place that funds fossil fuel, then I hope you move to your bank account to a place that doesn't fund fossil fuel. Obviously, I'm biased. I hope you'll, you'll move into to aspiration. But whether you choose aspiration or, or some other place, one thing you can do right now is make sure your money is aligned with your values. The second thing you can do is be conscious, uh, be conscious, have conscience of your spending choices. It's power you project into the world every single day. Where are you spending your money? Are you spending your money at places that treat their workers and the environment well or, or that exploit their workers and destroy the environment? I think it's so overwhelming when you focus on changing everything at once. What we need to do each is that we focus on the small changes we can make every single hour of every single day. If we all did that, it all adds up. That, of course, doesn't mean your individual actions are going to create change by themselves, but the honest answer is all we can do is what we have in our own two hands 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And that's where I hope those who are watching and listening will start.
0: What are you seeing in terms of, a, at a generational level, in terms of identification with uh, these values, uh, Joe? And um, in terms well, of your. There's
1: too much made of the generational differences. I think these values are shared across generations. I think it's a false media narrative that this is a millennial thing.
0: And and you think that because, based on your experience at Aspiration, having a particular cross-section of clients that have erased that belief? I'm just trying to, try, I, I, I'm trying to understand your Well, doubt. I never
1: believed it. I mean, I, I think the idea, I think these values are universal. The values, We might okay. describe them differently. Yeah. based on our age. But I think um, all of us being human are universally connected to these values. Some of us may have more layers of cynicism that cover up these values, um,
0: but the values are there. And is that true? Um, yeah, I, I see. I mean, I tend to agree with that. And I tend to agree that there is a, um, a categorization that millennials are more fond of these values than, I mean, other people. I just was hinting at like, I mean, what are you actually seeing as opposed to just just, um, you know, sort of thinking that Do you also see that same. Um, a lot of aspirations been turning around climate change, but I also know that you guys are very sensitive to gun violence. Um, right. And I mean, that, and, and that's obviously a sensitive topic for a lot of people at a lot of different levels. And it's actually more it may be increasingly more visceral than the climate experience to some extent, at least in American culture. Um, Can can you walk us through um, why and how sort of aspiration you are sort of navigating the gun violence, um, you know, topic in relationship to money?
1: your Your deposits of aspiration are never lent to gun companies, which is not the case for many large banks that use your money to make loans to gun companies that build weapons of death and use that money to lobby Congress against sensible gun regulation. No one needs automatic weapons. But the gun companies lobby against restrictions on automatic weapons. So first of all, Aspiration delivers you the peace of mind that your money is never lent to those companies. Second of all, Aspiration can use its, its collective consciousness and Um, It's the collective purchasing power of its customers to influence and and reward businesses that do well and do do ill. For example, several weeks ago, when Walmart workers were walking out in protest of all the gun sales at Walmart, Aspiration um, offered a cash bonus to Walmart workers um, to support their efforts to make Walmart change their behavior. Now, this week, Walmart announced its Stopping the sale of handguns and handgun ammunition at stores. So, Aspiration announced that to applaud that, it's um, giving a cash bonus to Aspiration customers who spend at Walmart because we have to show that we can be critical and also applaud. Yeah. yeah. Uh, you know, there's no perfect person and there's no perfect company. And I think moral authority is born of being intellectually honest about the capability of almost every person in every company to do badly and to do well and to call out equally both.
0: So for you, the Walmart move was a very um, um, big leap forward for, for, for somebody in that, for an executive group, ownership group of that magnitude in the states with that much inertia um, to actually come out and put a clear prohibition on certain things. Um, I mean, that says a lot. It does. And Walmart still has many imperfections.
1: I I quite oppose how they treat their workers. Um, I quite oppose how many of uh, Walmart's workers are on food stamps, which essentially means that we as taxpayers subsidize Walmart's profitability by enabling them to pay their workers low wages and then offsetting those low wages with food stamps, right? But again, understanding that Companies and people exist in
0: shades of gray.
1: We also have to acknowledge that Walmart did the right thing and you have to applaud them for doing the right thing.
0: Yeah. Speaking of that culture, let's turn our attention now to you've had a unique chance of influencing. Um uh, last time we chatted, you mentioned that Aspiration has 250 employees. And um I know company culture is important to you. Um, it's also an important topic to a lot of people who are trying to do systemic change and uh, instill intentionality into business um, conduct and affairs. Um, Walk us through the kind of people that are being attracted to to working at at Aspiration at the moment.
1: Well, mission-driven people who want to change the world are the kinds of people that we want at Aspiration. And people who are, you know, understand that um, it's hard to create change and we have to work really, really, really hard.
0: But I mean, how do you know somebody's mission driven? I mean, are they walking in? Are you so you I so I mean I've read your your ads for uh, you know when I mean, you, you know when you meet them. You do. I, I can okay. figure out
1: if someone's mission. I can figure out someone's mission driven in five minutes.
0: <laughs> <laughs> By body behavior or particular questions that you ask?
1: You just can tell the authenticity of someone's answers to certain questions.
0: Okay. Uh, okay. Yeah, I've and, never
1: found it difficult to find if someone's mission German. Yeah,
0: yeah, 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 for sure. And I mean, are you still um, walk us through what um, your role is in terms of culture, in terms of um, working on the culture, and in terms of where where you're at in the aspiration sort of evolution right now as Joe Sandberg. The co-founder. I mean, I know it's pivoted numerous times, and you're called upon to do lots of different things at different times. But there's certain chapters that a co-founder goes through, and sort of sort of bring us up to speed on where Joe Sandberg is at the moment in your evolution in relation to Aspiration.
1: Well, I'm probably chief pain in the ass. <laughs> Can you? I very much. I believe very much in the importance of Aspiration's mission. And I also believe in the plausibility of the the full realization of its potential. And and I see um, part of my role is encouraging and also um, maintaining a standard of expectations for what aspiration should achieve. You know, aspiration is not just about making money. Aspiration is about elevating people's consciousness about money and changing the way that financial services are conducted. Until we change how financial services are conducted, political change is always going to be two steps forward, three steps back. Yeah. I'm deeply serious that we cannot accept anything less than seeing aspiration to its full potential, which to me means changing the nature of financial services so that this is just the way things are done, the aspiration way. and um, And that means that can be tough and Hard charging um, because I think the moral urgency of Aspiration's mission is of historic consequence. This isn't just a company looking, you know, to do an IPO one day and uh, deliver a great return for its investors. Obviously, those things are important, but those things are going to be byproducts of delivering Aspiration's mission for its customers to make it easy for eventually tens of millions of people to match their banking investing, spending, in their values, and all the very positive social change that will come of that. So um, because I believe so much in that and I know it's possible, um, I think uh, I'm uniquely qualified to be chief pain in the ass. <laughs>
0: <laughs> uh, and can you talk, um, I mean, I know you feel very fortunate for uh, who your co-founder is. Can you talk a little bit uh, about Andre and in terms of what his current, um, what his evolution is a little bit, he's he's in the news often. He was just featured in the LA Times and I think he gets interviewed, uh, it seems like, on a weekly basis now. Um, and I mean, has his own sort of sense of direction and contribution to um, that and maybe to just sort of talk a little bit about um, his qualities and his leadership and his evolution as well.
1: Well, I, I'm proud to have co-founded Aspiration with Andre Cherny who's Aspiration CEO. Mm-hmm. I think he's an exceptionally talented leader, visionary, and executive. And I think the results of Aspiration really speak to all of those attributes. Um, I think the, the mission of the company is fortunate for Andre's leadership.
0: So they, um, can you talk, uh, um, I mean, obviously the co-founder thing, uh, co-founder, um, how to navigate that. I mean, um, he, he has a particular, um, he has a particular, I would say, disposition. You have a certain sort of disposition. How do you guys walk through the inevitable sort of conflict resolution moments? Like, um, um, I mean, walk us through sort of a practice that you and him have sort of navigating uh, differences over direction or policy or just a conversation.
1: Andre and I don't have differences over the vision and direction of aspiration. He and I continue to be perfectly aligned on that. Um, You know, we co-birthed this company and um, I think we've always seen an exact alignment what it needs to become and and how to get there. So there's a deep, deep, deep deep-seated trust between me and Andre. I think that's one of the great advantages of the company.
0: Yeah. Now, in terms of... um... One particular thing that's uh, growing as a particular, I would say, interest of people in the impact space is actually conflict resolution, because a lot of sort of negative energy is actually held, and a lot of anger is potentially held, or sort of a passive aggressiveness is potentially held. Uh, so I always like to sort of explore that, even if it's not Andre. But, you know, there are people that aren't aligned with you as a mission that you have to deal with in terms of regulators, for instance, who may be more one-dimensional and not be mission oriented. I just mean
1: I think our regu- I think the regulators are very mission aligned because the regulators are charged with protecting customers. and the number one thing that aspiration has to honor is the seriousness of the duty of care it has towards its customers. I think the the regulators in the financial industry have a critically important job. My view is there should be more regulation. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: I think that companies should build to the highest standard of regulation instead of trying to find ways to short-circuit regulation. And my hope is that new financial companies will look to the regulators as partners in building businesses that honor the seriousness of the duty of care they have for their customers' money. Um So, you know, I think it's really important that, that people know that regulators uh, have a hard job. Um, regulators are not paid a lot. They do it because they believe in the purpose of protecting consumers. And I think regulators that uh, we've seen in the financial industry are people that uh, uphold the highest level of public service and um, the spirit of giving back. Um, you know, you don't become a regulator because of the glory and the money you become a regulator because you believe in the importance of protecting consumers. And, um, you know, I think we should, we should honor the people who make, um, those choices instead of the narrative that sometimes prevails, which is, you know, this, that, or the other.
0: Sure. Sure. Well, I mean, we're actually coming up on our last uh, few minutes, Joe here. I wanted to, um, ask you before, we sign out is there something sort of that emerged during our conversation of the past 50 minutes that um you'd like to expand on or something that didn't come up that uh, you would like to share in the final moments here with the people
1: no i really enjoyed the enjoyed the conversation and um you know i wouldn't be a good co-founder if i didn't encourage everyone who's listening to go to aspiration.com and, and open an account
0: of course and I'm, I'm also doing that as well for you um as well Um, Again, this is Gino Borges with, uh, thank you for joining us here with Joe Sandberg, who's our first speaker in the fall series for The Journey to Impact, which is a virtual fireside chat series. Joe, thanks so much for joining us today.
1: Thanks for having me. Have a
0: great one. Thanks, you too. Thank you for listening to The Journey to Impact. If you enjoyed this episode, help us spread the word by subscribing to this series on Apple Podcasts and sharing with your friends on your favorite social media platform. For a preview of our previous or upcoming episodes, visit www.poetryofimpact.com.